class with Mr. Lutz, where today we will tackle the empires of the Ottomans, Safavids, and the Mughals by comparing how they were formed, what their societies looked like, and what led to their decline or demise. Don't really have much else to say before we get into it, so let's just start right away. So I'm going to try to organize the key concept connections section into more of a comparative uh, format than your textbook does. Your textbook likes to just go Ottomans, then on to the Safavids, and then on to the Mughals. So what we'll do is we'll talk about how the formation of empire in the three different empires. We'll talk about Islamic society, kind of touching on some different topics, including women, economics, religion, culture. Uh, and then we'll finish out the key concept connections by starting to talk about Kind of the transition point that these empires start to hit in the 18th century. So where we'll start is going to be with the imperial formation with the Ottomans. So in the beginning, the Ottomans are going to emerge thanks to their original leader, Osman Bey. Now, Osman Bey is going to lead his fellow Ghazi, which are known as religious warriors, in the Anatolian Plateau to carve out a territory that butted up against the Christian Byzantine Empire and the two would butt heads with each other for basically the next 200 years, going from the 13th century to the 15th century. Early Ottoman military success is going to be accomplished thanks in part to not only their military organization, but also their well-trained and well-equipped cavalry forces, who are typically comprised of members of the aristocracy. But their military is really going to reach an elite status once they spread their conquests into the Balkan Peninsula, kind of going around Constantinople, not really attacking the Byzantine capital successfully quite yet. And once they're in the Balkans, they're going to implement a system known as the Dev Shermay. Now, in the Dev Shermay, non-Muslim children are going to be recruited from the local population in the Balkans. And they're basically going to be enslaved by the sultan. And, and these boys are going to be some of the seemingly most capable boys in the area. Because what's going to happen is they're going to be converted to Islam. And they're going to be trained in order to serve as government officials. Or they're going to serve in an elite guard that was known as the Janissaries. So the Janissaries are known for their dedication and their willingness to incorporate the newest gunpowder weapons to their units. And they're going to start to take primacy in terms of their importance in the military over that aristocratic cavalry that I had briefly mentioned just a few moments ago. So throughout the 14th century, the Ottomans will have expanded throughout the Anatolian Peninsula, and they had moved around the heart of Byzantium and into the Balkans. And by the mid-15th century, they are ready to set their sights on the Byzantine capital of Constantinople. So that conquest of Constantinople by Mehmed the Conqueror in 1453, and that is a big, big date in our world history class, that marks the end of the Byzantine Empire, which if you stop and think about it, we've seen in some type of existence since about the 4th century CE. And so now with 1453, it transitions to this new era in Ottoman society. 
the Ottomans had laid siege to the city with an army of about 100,000 for several weeks, and what ultimately helps them succeed in breaching those walls of Constantinople was their cannon. So the city of Constantinople is now going to be known as Istanbul, and it is going to serve as the Ottoman capital, and it's soon going to start to transform itself in order to suit the needs of their new owners. Take, uh, for example, the Hagia Sophia, which was that church that had been constructed by Justinian in the 6th century CE. That's now going to be transformed into a mosque. Uh, Mehmed the Conqueror is going to establish himself as an absolute ruler of a very strong and centralized state, and he's going to quickly set about expanding into Serbia, Greece, and Albania. And with the Byzantines eliminated, there's really going to be no serious challenges to Ottoman supremacy in the region. Now, the next major ruler that you're going to need to know about the Ottomans after Mehmed the Conqueror is going to be Suleiman the Magnificent, who's also known as Suleiman the Lawgiver. He is going to continue the Ottoman patterns of expansion throughout the 16th century. He'll go on to conquer modern-day Iraq and its former Abbasid capital of Baghdad, and he's going to give the Central Europeans nightmares especially. He'll capture the city of Belgrade, he'll move into the Kingdom of Hungary, uh, snatching the city of modern-day Budapest. So for those of you going on the trip in a little bit of time here, uh, yeah, we're going to be in Ottoman territory soon enough. And he'll ultimately lay siege to the Habsburg city of Vienna for a short period of time, even though he never successfully establishes Ottoman control. And the Ottoman navy is going to have expanded its power in the Black Sea and the Mediterranean, and they're even going to start competing with the Portuguese in the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean. And so it's interesting because at this time we, we always associate control of the seas as being solely in the hands of Europeans. But in the 16th century, the Ottomans and the Red Sea are giving Europeans a run for their money. Uh, they'll secure the west coast of Yemen. They'll attack Portuguese ships off the west coast of India. So without question, the Ottomans are a serious force to be reckoned with in the 16th century. So we're going to leave the Ottomans on the shelf temporarily because we've kind of established how they become an empire that needs to be considered a major world power during this time period. We're going to shift our focus and turn to the Safavids. So beginning in 1501, that's when the Ottomans are going to be eventually bordered to their east by this newfound Safavid empire. So this empire is going to be founded by Ishmael, who is a Turk who became the first Safavid Shah upon his conquest of the city of Tabriz. and Although we have to understand uh, Ishmael is originally a Sufi, it is also going to be Ishmael who declares the official religion of the Safavid Empire to not be Sufi Islam or, or a sect of Sufi Islam. It's going to be officially Shia Islam. Now, something to keep in mind with this development, though, is, of course, that they're descended from Sufis. So they're making the conscious decision that they are going to convert and change their religion. And they decide to change their religious affiliation because they believe it's going to help them solidify their claim of legitimacy with the people in the region who tended to practice this strain of Islam. And they're even going to force Sunnis in the region to convert as well. And this type of Shiism is known as Twelver Shiism because it's believed that the 12th Imam, who was the religious leader that followed after Muhammad, well, the first who was considered to be an imam is his cousin Ali, who Sunnis would consider to be the fourth caliph of the caliphate, uh, but, but Shia will consider him to be the first rightful successor 
of Muhammad. You'll remember that dispute back from the earlier unit that we had studied with Islam. Um, but the 12th Imam, it was believed, had gone into hiding in order to escape persecution. And the Safavids began to circulate this myth that Ishmael was in fact that 12th or hidden Imam who had been brought back down by God to lead the people. So as a result, the Ottomans, neighboring the Safavids here, are going to fear the potential effects of the spread of Shiism and the power of the Safavids. So what they're going to do is they are going to invade Safavid territory, and the two are going to engage in fighting at the Battle of Chaldrian in 1514. The difference maker here is going to be Ottoman firepower provided by the Janissary Corps because it is going to tear in to the elite Safavid cavalry made up of people known as the Kizilbash. Also, your book will refer to them as the Redheads, who had attempted to charge into the lines of fire provided from Ottoman cannon and muskets. And what this does is it wipes out any type of potential success the Safavids could have had in this battle. So Ottoman victory at Chaldrian established them as the predominant power in the region, but the distance of Tabriz from the Ottoman heartlands are going to make complete conquest of the Safavid Empire way too difficult of a concept for the Ottomans. So over time, the Safavids are going to lick their wounds and kind of recover after those initial glories with Ishmael and then the subsequent disaster at Chaldrian. And they're going to do this by expanding their bureaucracy, employing more Persians, who we have seen in the past to be very effective bureaucrats. And they're also going to provide their high-ranking military officials with land. So A, those military officials remain loyal, and B, they have a stronger reason to fight to ensure the success of the empire. And we've seen this tactic in different parts of history throughout time. Uh, we've seen it with the Romans. We've seen it with the Byzantines. Um, and here we see it again with the Safavids. So the Safavids are going to be put fully back on track, in my opinion, during the reign of Shah Abbas the Great. Much like the Dev Shermay, Abbas is going to establish a system that brings in Russian boys, converts them to Islam, and ultimately trains them to serve as leaders in the military or in the government. So these slave regiments are also going to begin to employ the use of gunpowder weapons to a greater degree, and soon enough the Safavids are piling up military successes. And if you're saying to yourself this sounds an awfully lot like the Ottomans, that's because it is. Uh, they're going to defeat the Portuguese at Hormuz, which is a strategic squeeze point that's kind of located at the mouth of the Persian Gulf, they're going to fight with the Ottomans in coordination with, uh, with European militaries, and they're going to expand into Armenia and parts of Mesopotamia as well. So that gets us set up with the Safavids. So finally, in this first part, we'll turn our attention to the Mughals. So in the 1520s, a descendant of Genghis Khan and Tamerlane, who's known as Babur, is going to emerge from Central Asia and move into India, where he begins on the path of conquest ultimately intending to use the wealth of India as a springboard to establish an empire that would stretch throughout Southern and especially Central Asia. Although he's not going to succeed in making this Central Asian empire he had set out to establish, Babur is going to lay the foundations for the Mughal Empire of India that's going to basically remain for the better part of the next three centuries. So what separates Babur, though, from the previous people I've mentioned, like Ishmael and Osman Bey is he doesn't fashion himself to be this religious fighter or leader. 
but he did practice Islam, so that's why he kind of gets lumped in with these other two. And his successors are going to expand their empire and come to control vast swaths of territory inhabited by people who had primarily religiously identified as being Hindu. So his grandson, Akbar, is going to come to be considered one of, if not the most successful emperor of the Mughal Empire, at least in terms of the culture that he kind of sets out to establish, the cultural trends he sets out to establish. He is going to bring government administration under a more centralized organization. He's going to expand the empire further into the south. And warrior aristocrats are going to be granted land in exchange for the military service, just as they were in the Ottoman and just as they were in the Safavid, which I had just explained to you. However, it's going to be his policies of religious toleration that defined him the most. He's going to have encouraged Mughal leaders to marry the daughters of the Hindu Rajput elites. He abolishes the jizya, which if you recall back in our previous unit, was the head tax on non-Muslims. Um, and that would kind of ensure them protection and the ability to practice the religion that they choose. And he's going to appoint Hindus to high-ranking government positions as well. And even though he can't read himself, he's going to have books read to him, and he's going to work closely with early practitioners of Sikhism, uh, or the, the, the people who follow Islam, people who follow Hinduism, to develop this divine faith that he will call, and your book will refer to as the Din-e-Allahi, which had worked to merge primarily both Hindu and Muslim beliefs, but also incorporate some other traditions of other faiths in the region. So that kind of gets us set up with all three. We're kind of all out of the gates. We've got to establish these three empires. So now let's try to comparatively look at, so we can look at some different aspects of their society during this time. And we'll begin with women. Um, though not on an official basis, women were going to be involved in politics, serving as mothers, wives, or concubines who helped advise the emperor during their rule. For example, Suleiman the Magnificent of the Ottoman Empire had a concubine who was named Roxolana, who became his wife eventually, and helped him make decisions regarding succession, even advising him to kill his eldest son so hers could become his successor. Um, there was one wife of a Safavid Shah who had basically served as the rule of the empire, and at one point the Mughals as well, uh, the emperor Jahangir, had basically left his wife, Nur Jahan, in charge of the government. So again, Although women aren't serving in an official government capacity um, as being mothers or wives or concubines of the emperor, they kind of have this unofficial advisory role where they can exercise some power. Now, in terms of economics, uh, bringing up something we've talked about a lot in this unit, and that is the Colombian exchange. It does have an impact on the Islamic world, both in terms of the food and the luxury goods that they will enjoy. Indian food is going to start to begin to incorporate potatoes, and the tomato is going to become popular in foods throughout not only the Mediterranean, but also the Islamic worlds. Um, coffee and sugar, though it originated in the old world, they only really become popular once they become mass-produced in the plantations in the Americas, and then ultimately exported back to Asian markets by European merchants. And by the 17th century, Tobacco, which was an American good, had become very popular throughout the Ottoman Empire, where it's frequently found in coffee houses. 
Now, this is kind of a trend that we're going to see here. Conservatives in the empire are going to believe goods like these are undermining the moral fabric of Islamic culture, and they're both going to be temporarily outlawed. That is, coffee and tobacco in the empire before ultimately having a resurgence and becoming popular among the people once again. So trade relations are of importance for Islam for the Islamic empires, both for economic as well as political purposes. The location of these empires, kind of stretching between Europe and then the far eastern Asia, is going to help bring them into contact with Europeans who desire luxury goods from the region. The Ottomans are going to leverage their importance to form strong ties with the French and English so they can unify in their common opposition to the Spanish, who, if you recall, had been kind of fighting back Islamic influence during this time period, and the Habsburg Empire of Central Europe, who was kind of butting up against the Ottomans down near the Balkans, where the Ottomans are maybe looking to expand beyond their borders. The Safavids are going to build up Isfahan, which is going to become a new capital, as a trade emporium that features silk, carpets, luxury craft goods, and these markets are going to attract the interest of the English and the Dutch and the French. And these nations are going to help build up the Safavid military as well with gunpowder weapons so that they can ultimately expel the Portuguese from their coastlines. And lastly, the Mughals had also attracted European merchants, of course. And these European merchants are going to establish those colonies along the coastlines. Um, and this is all happening, even though the Mughals aren't really placing foreign trade highly on their list of priorities. Now, in terms of religion, we have to understand all three of these empires dealt with an array of religions in their empire. The Ottomans are going to cohabitate with Christians and Jewish minorities throughout the empire. There's going to be Jews and Zoroastrians found in the Safavid Empire. And the Mughals are a minority in a territory that's dominated by Hindus, but it also features Jains, Zoroastrians, and Christians as well. Jesuit missionaries had come from Portugal and had been working albeit unsuccessfully, to convert the Emperor Akbar to Christianity. Of course, if you recall, I had mentioned a little bit ago, he, of course, was busy developing his divine faith that would unite Islam and Hinduism, ultimately to foster loyalty to the emperor, kind of above all else. Um, religious minorities in these empires, more often than not, were required to pay the jizya in order to receive protected status in Islamic society. But the Ottomans are going to even devise something called the millet system, which allows for minority religious communities to maintain their legal traditions and cultures. Uh, Akbar altogether eliminated the jizya, although later on it's going to be restored by a later successor of his named Aurangzeb in the late 16th, excuse me, the late 17th, and early 18th centuries. Culturally speaking, as these empires are growing in size and power, their leadership is going to work to commission cultural products that are going to serve as a testament to the power they exercised in their time. For example, when Shah Abbas moved the capital of the Safavid Empire from Tabriz to Isfahan, he's going to construct this vast public square known as the Nakhchi Jahan Square. And it's going to have featured one of the largest bazaar markets in all of the Islamic world. It's going to feature a massive mosque and an impressive palace, and these buildings featured elaborate ornamental patterns on their facades that still draw admirers to this day. 
the Ottomans inherited a city in Constantinople, which of course they're going to rename as Istanbul, that had really become run down over the centuries prior to Ottoman conquest. They're going to construct a palace called the Topkapi Palace, and it's going to be constructed to house government affairs. It's going to house the Sultan's harem and the living quarters of not only him, but his closest advisors and officials as well. They're going to construct the Suleimani Mosque complex that is considered a marvel of Ottoman architecture and today is revered on a level, level similar to that of the Hagia Sophia. And the Mughals, they're going to have moved capitals early on in a way that's really similar to their ancestors of the steppe. And Akbar is going to establish a capital at a place called Fatapur Sikri. And he's going to construct this, this capital city. It'll have government complexes, royal quarters, audience halls, and palaces where he's going to engage in his passionate discussions with his experts on arts and on religion. And most of all, though, it's going to be during the reign of Mughal Emperor Shah Jahan when the Taj Mahal was constructed as an elaborate tomb complex dedicated to his wife known as Mumtaz Mahal. Uh, the construction of this project is considered to be a masterpiece in terms of its blending of styles ranging from South Asia to Central Asia and the Middle East. And it's going to have taken 20,000 workers 18 years to construct this palace that is known the world over today. Finally, in this key concept connection section, we'll look at these empires as they start to enter what we'll deem to be this transitional phase. As the 18th century hit, three Islamic empires are beginning to decline at a minimum. In fact, though, you have to understand, by 1722, the Safavids had collapsed altogether, the Mughals were losing grip on power due to European expansion, and the Ottomans had begun to lose territories on its fringes. So the question is, really, what, what happened? What's going on throughout these three empires? Politically speaking, all three empires had fallen victim to incompetent rulers at different stretches of time, and the problems that also are going to stem over the infighting that is going to emerge over succession to the throne, because all three of these empires will not have a clear plan for succession established. In the Ottoman Empire, this infighting is going to result in princes living a life of seclusion within Topkapi Palace, and thus they're going to develop very little in the way of their social, let alone their political skills. A period of mostly incompetent rule had led to authority weakening in the countryside, and it's going to lead to revolts and general discontent throughout the Ottoman Empire. And in the Safavid Empire, political leaders had worked to ensure that Shah Abbas's grandson would succeed him, not because he was an especially capable ruler, but because these top political leaders viewed this grandson as being weak and easy to manipulate for their own selfish interests. Economically speaking, when conquest is happening for these Islamic empires, that of course means new sources of money are going to be flowing into the treasuries and they can finance massive militaries, complex bureaucracies, all that kind of good stuff. But all three of these empires, of course, over time are going to slow in terms of their growth. And not only that, they're going to have fought lengthy and exhausted battles that cost them a fortune. The Ottomans not only fighting against the Habsburgs in Central Europe, fighting with the Safavids as well, and the Mughals fighting with Hindu kingdoms to their south. And these governments are going to resort to raising taxes or even kind of becoming corrupt and taking bribes to bring in some type of revenue. 
And one thing that they're not going to do, though, is to seek to expand commercial contacts beyond allowing foreign merchants into their empires. These empires never actively sought to expand their trade networks beyond the nations that just come to them. And in an era that's dominated by global trade, this decision to not actively pursue trade expansion is not only costly, it's really short-sighted. And this slow economic growth is not going to help, especially in terms of weapons manufacturing, when you see Europe just rapidly excelling and developing new weapons technology. And these Ottoman empires, excuse me, these Islamic empires are just not going to be able to keep pace. And finally, religiously and culturally, we kind of see a general intolerance or even like an arrogance, uh, maybe a way to phrase it. So you have religious conservatives in the empires that are going to often be against reforms or sharing powers with any individuals or groups that are seemingly potentially going to chip away at any authority that they had. Religious conservatives in the Ottoman Empire had protested against the printing press and the building of an observatory. Um, some of the policies of Aurangzeb to reintroduce the jizya tax after, if you recall, Akbar had, had ended that tax temporarily, that's going to inflame tensions between religious groups in the Mughal Empire. And, and the Muslims of these three empires, in general terms, are going to feel culturally superior to Europeans, and they're not going to believe they have much to learn from them. And it's not going to be until the 18th century when finally we really see European scientific instruments that had kind of been a product of that scientific revolution like telescopes and other things like the printing press, really being permitted to operate, uh, at least for the Ottomans, and into their own benefit. And part of the opposition to printing, yeah, it stems from an appreciation of the handwritten script, especially in regards to the Quran. If you recall, it's not even the, the message of the Quran that is so revered. Of course, that's revered, but it's also how it is artistically portrayed and how it's delivered. So to print that kind of removes something from the artistry of the book. But there's also a looming fear among elites about the potential impact of making books and print materials readily available to the masses. Maybe they've heard of Martin Luther. I don't know. Anyways, these Islamic empires were ready and willing to adopt technologies like weapons that could enhance their power but on the flip side, they're going to be hostile to those technologies like those of science and printing that might lead to some beginning to question their power. So with the zooming in feature today, I really do actually want to zoom in on one quote by your book that states, quote, Though not the cruel bigot he's often portrayed as, Aurangzeb was not the man to restore the dynasty's declining fortunes, end quote. So this quote, obviously, pertaining to Aurangzeb at kind of the nearing the end of the Mughal Empire, is fair and quietly introduces a significant historical contention that exists in world history today, and that is the legacy of Aurangzeb's rule. So there's a Rutgers University professor and historian named Audrey Trushke, and she's written a book called Aurangzeb, the Man and the Myth. 
and she addresses some historical misconceptions about Aurangzeb's rule. And I'd like to kind of summarize a few of her points because I think they really get to the heart of why the story of the past will always matter in the present. Um, so I'm going to be kind of talking more specifically about an article she wrote for a magazine called Eon Magazine. And I'll provide a link in the episode description if you're interested in reading the article. It's definitely worth checking out. So the first misconception that she deals with is that Aurangzeb is often seen as being brutal because he imprisons his father, Shah Jahan, and he executes two of his three brothers in order to take the throne. So Trushki argues that this may seem harsh in our own view, but considering this within its own historical context allows one to realize that struggles for succession were not uncommon during this time period. She even goes on to suggest that other historians have suggested infighting was in fact a good thing because it allowed for the most capable of governing to take power, considering the fact they would need to forge alliances and kind of compromise in order to form coalitions that could cement their rule in Islamic society in India during the Mughal Empire. Uh, she also believes that Aurangzeb came to power with the skills of leadership and experience to help him govern. She emphasizes, quote, above all else, Aurangzeb wanted to enlarge Mughal domains, and his expansion aims limited his other goals, especially his pursuit of justice. Often we can glimpse some of the key tensions of his reign by identifying points of conflict between his unbridled imperial ambitions and his professed commitment to piety, just rule, and Mughal kingship, end quote. So to her, the imprisonment of his father is revealing as to where Aurangzeb's most important priorities are found. And the key revelation here, folks, is that it's not with emphasizing a moral justice above all else, even though sometimes Aurangzeb likes to think that's the case. The second thing she addresses is the big contention, and that, and that is, is that Aurangzeb was religiously intolerant and wanted to destroy opposition to Islam. She makes it a point to connect Aurangzeb's handling of opponents to the political sphere above the religious sphere. So she connects a son who attempted to overthrow him, being banished from India, a Maratha named Shivaji who had fought against Mughal rule in central India, and another guy named Teg Bahadur who was the ninth scene guru and had challenged the power of the Mughals. Uh, Shivaji was never captured, but his son was brutally executed as a result of what his father did. And so was Teg Bahadur, but it was because of their threat to Mughal control, not due to the religion. And she makes it an interesting point to say that, you know, we, we always talk about it being like, oh, he attacks Hindus, he attacks Hindus. But it's oftentimes that these people, if you look at the primary documents, they don't refer to themselves as being Hindu. They might refer to themselves as being a Maratha. Um, so that it's going to be a political identification or the identification of being from a separate state as opposed to a religious identification. And it's often discussed that Aurangzeb ordered the destruction of Hindu temples, and this is true, but it's not because of the religion they promoted, and the tradition of temple destruction had been exercised by Hindu kings in the past. Though this is often marked as one of the major legacies of Aurangzeb, Trotsky notes that it's the same ruler who had appointed half of the positions in the Mughal nobility to Hindus, and that was even more than his predecessors. And she summarizes the importance of her work in a very agreeable way in the last paragraph by saying, quote, 
we must embrace this project of understanding Aurangzeb on his own terms in order to gain a more accurate perspective on this influential emperor and the world he helped to create. Studying Aurangzeb also helps to challenge modern ignorance and hate by presenting us with a complicated man that we cannot explain by simple reference to modern categories and biases. Knowing more about Aurangzeb is important both for India's past and India's present. End quote. Now, I like this quote not just because I find it agreeable for Aurangzeb, but it can apply to so many different people and places throughout history. The statement generally says we need to understand the past on its own terms, divorced of our prejudices, shaped by our present, in order to shed light on our own society's misgivings, to hopefully chart a better and more understanding future. The legacy of Aurangzeb, of course, can be debated, but Trushke's larger point about how we should approach history in our present world cannot and should not be argued against. So for the explainer, um, I have trouble with how your textbook is organized for the chapter. I kind of mentioned at the beginning, I'm going to say it again here. I'm going to recommend that you create notes in the form of spice themes or something along the lines of what I've tried to outline in this podcast, talking about their their creating of an empire, what their society looks like in terms of how it deals with women, how it views itself religiously, what the economics are like, things like that. Um, and also to take notes comparatively, not only between these three places, but also when you can Think about how they compare to the Spanish, the Portuguese, these other major empires of this time, because it's going to help you to develop a broader global understanding of the time period while, of course, ultimately helping you to review. And also be sure you're reviewing the key concepts as well that I've listed at the top of the blog post and physically jotting down the ways this episode has addressed them, because I think this helps you to keep track of what you've learned here in relation to the key concepts. Finally, a recommendation, one I've made before, one I'm going to make again, and that is the Head on History podcast. Um, There's so many good topics on Islam, and several of the earlier episodes include um, topics related to these empires that we've discussed here. And I think he does a great job at really zeroing in on some particular aspects that I just can't cover in a half-hour general interest podcast that kind of tries to cover anything and pretty much absolutely everything. Um, But yeah, head on history. Definitely head over there. Check it out. It talks about Islam in terms of historical developments, but also Islam in the modern world, which I think is definitely something we should work to have a better understanding of. But that's all I've got for you today. So I'm going to end it here. Until next time, take care, everybody. Thank you.